Welcome to Africa, Stories in the 55. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. We're an African literature program, but sometimes art and politics collide. So this month, we're featuring very strong novelists who come from two of the seven countries U.S. President Donald Trump initially banned. This isn't a dip into negativity, but a showcase of positivity. We start with Sudanese writer Leila Abulela, the Scotland-based award-winning author of five novels, including her latest, The Kindness of Enemies, a novel. She tells stories in the 55 what it's all about. It's about parallels between present-day Europe, I suppose, and, and the way Muslims are struggling in Europe with 19th century Russia when Imam Shamil led resistance against Russian imperial expansion. So the book goes back and forth between the two times. So the book goes back and forth between the two times. And there's more actually of, of the, the historical story because it's, it's a very dramatic story of how Imam Shamil, who was the leader of the Muslim tribes of the Caucasus, His son was taken hostage by the Russians at the age of eight, and he wasn't returned. And uh, he was brought up as a godson uh, for the Tsar. So Imam Shamil had to live with the humiliation of his son being brought up by his enemies. And in order to get his son back, he kidnaps uh, a Georgian princess uh, in order to exchange her for, uh, for his son. And a lot, of the, a lot of the novel shows that this kidnapping and how Princess Anna finds life in, um, in Shamil's household because she's, this is where she's kept. She's kept with his wives. She finds herself in this very alien place. And I guess the title comes from the fact that even though the tribes and the Russians were enemies, there's intense sort of encounters between the two sides on an individual level, whether it's Anna developing sort of romantic feelings towards Imam Shamil or whether it's uh, Imam Shamil's son, Jamaluddin, uh, you know, admiring Russian civilization and, and feeling that he is Russian because he's been brought up in, in, in Russia. So it's about these conflicting feelings of people caught between cultures. There were so many parallels, making the parallel between modern day and the past. What inspired you? I guess I was excited about the historical story of Imam Shamil and his son and how he lost his son to the Russians. But then I thought it would be like too big a leap for us as modern readers to go into the past without having some modern-day narrator kind of filtering things from, from us and guiding us in a way. So that's where the character of Natasha comes in. She's the, the sort of the modern-day academic, and she's researching the history of Imam Shamil. She, uh, in a way, is sort of guiding us to the, to the past, and she also faces her, her own dilemma at work. She volunteers because she herself wants to fit in. She's half Sudanese, half Russian, and she has a a problem with fitting into British society. So she volunteers to report on her Muslim students who show signs of being radicalized. And this is quite a controversial initiative that has been now being set in, in British uh, universities, whereas teachers are asked to report students not for a crime that, that they've committed, but actually for showing signs of being vulnerable to radicalization. So you're actually, in that case, reporting a student for voicing opinions, for example, in class, uh, and, 
or 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 for not um, for showing signs that they're not fully integrated into society and and so on. So there is a kind of a you know a big big brother is watching you um, attitude going on. She does write these reports, but ironically, the student that does end up getting arrested is is the one that is her favorite student who she hadn't written a, a report about. So she herself then becomes subject to suspicion. She seems a bit awkward, even in her own skin. And the whole point is, is that, you know, in an institute of higher learning at like university, you're encouraged this free thought. And in fact, her thought is not so free. I do agree with that. I think that there are pockets, really cosmopolitan areas in the West, in Europe and in the United States, where there are, people are comfortable in uh, being from different cultures and having free thought and, and that, that sort of thing. But I think that there's also other areas where the dominant culture is very much a, a sort of a white vision of the world. And so in these places, it is uncomfortable. I mean, she, I'm kind of um, presenting her as being the only black academic in her department or even in, in the university teaching in the university that would be very unusual for example in the capital in London where you'd have universities will be full of lecturers from different racial backgrounds but in her case she's she's quite in a lonely situation so I think the setting is also important in in, in that way yeah at one point, and we I, we don't want to give away the ending, of course, we want people to read the book, but um, she actually goes back to Sudan. She's in Khartoum where she meets up with some old friends. It's interesting to see through her eyes how Khartoum has changed so much since she left when she was a teenager, when she was an insolent teenager and has gone back and, and seen everything with new eyes and perhaps a different perspective than how she viewed her heritage from before. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because uh, not many people have mentioned these chapters and, and they were quite special to me when I wrote them because I enjoyed writing about her returning to Khartoum and seeing her old friends and, and looking for the house that she remembered as a child. I've also been away from, from Khartoum for many years now and going back, I'm sort of stunned by all the, the changes that have taken place there, all the new buildings and and even though I lived, I mean, unlike Natasha, she she left Sudan as a teenager, whereas I left Sudan in my mid-20s. So I actually lived a long time in Sudan, and I went to university there, and I got married when I was there, and I had my first child when I was there. So I had, she did a lot of life in Sudan compared to her as a character. But now going back, I am struck by, you know, this is a new Sudan where you know, there's internet and there's, you know, cafes and there's things like that. So I wanted to, to, to write about that as well. When she goes back to the West, she has a new appreciation, perhaps. I mean, that, that's what I got out of the book. I definitely agree. I think, I think when she goes back and she connects to her friends who also, like her, have this dual nationality, this dual culture, you know, the, the Sudanese father and the East European mother. So she connects with this small community of people and she realizes that this is her tribe in a way, you know, and this is who she is, but she had chosen or circumstances have taken her to live far away geographically, but at least this is now where she knows that this is who she is like. And I think that that's important for her. And I think it's important, I myself personally, after being, you know, living far away from Sudan and moving around in different countries, I'm realizing that 
this business of identity is not an either or, but it's of having something that you treasure, even if it's a small thing. It's a connection. It's something that you can you you treasure. It's a memory, and that you can take it with you. And I think that sometimes when we're talking about identity and talking about belonging, a sense of belonging, we talk in a in a kind of very stark alternatives. Whereas actually we can have a multitude of of you know of identities and and loyalties. And sometimes a small link is something that can be treasured. And here's Leila Abulela reading from *The Kindness of Enemies*, a novel. Far to my right, the hills were a sweep of white, and then below, the river was clean and flowing rapidly. A movement close by caught my eyes: powdery flakes drifting from a black and white tree, a strip of white on the black branch. My eyesight blurred, and I moved away before an aura fully developed. I could not cope with a full-blown migraine now—not when I was away from my flat. I had thought that if I discovered what made me anxious, I would be able to find a cure. But all I could do was learn to control it. The symptoms started when I was young. In a fancy dress party, I kicked and screamed at a child with the head of a wolf and the body of a seven-year-old boy. I knew that the wolf's head was fake. I myself was wearing a red Indian wig with two thick braids, pleasantly heavy, on my chest. I was not even unduly frightened of wolves, whether stalking the three little pigs or behind bars at the zoo. They were thrilling and worthy of respect, but they did not make me ill. It was the disproportion of the wolf's head to the child's body, the shock of the half-human, half-beast, the lack of fusion between the two. There was no merging. It was a clobbering together, abnormal and clumsy, the head of one species and the body of the other. Later. A picture of a centaur in a library book, and I vomited over the pages. Then, as a teenager, a scene in a horror film of a dog with a man's head made me faint. The video was the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the product of an innocent time when aliens from space were more threatening than Muslims from Al Qaeda. The explanation became clearer as I grew older. I was seeing in these awkward composites my own liminal self. The two sides of me that were slammed together against their will, that refused to mix. I was a failed hybrid made up of unalloyed selves. My Russian mother, who regretted marrying my Sudanese father, my African father, who came to hate his white wife, my atheist mother, who blotted out my Muslim heritage, my Arab father, who gave me up to Europe without a fight. I was the freak. I had been told so, and I had been taught so, and I had chewed on this verdict to the extent that no matter what, I could never purge myself of it entirely. My intellect could rebel, and I was re- well read on the historical roots and taboos against miscegenation. The word itself hardly ever used now, but revulsion and self-loathing still slithered through my body in minute doses. The disease was in me, despite the counseling and knowing better. Natasha Hussein would always be with me. I could glimpse her on the black-white contrast of a winter branch that was covered on one side with snow. What are you working on now? I'm working on a, a novel that has a sort of a fantasy element to it. It's mm-hmm. about three Muslim women on a road trip around Scotland. And they end up in a strange place called the Loch, where strange things start to happen to them. 
And at first, it's all very nice. They're enjoying uh, this magical place because they, each of them has her own issues and her own problems. But then after a while, the place starts to, to be kind of weird and difficult and they try to escape from it. Oh, wow. And this is your first foray into fantasy? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think it's an escape from what's going on in the world at the moment. <laughs> it's, difficult. it's difficult to write reality. So I wanted to kind of like uh, escape in a fantasy world and write a novel that's it's inspired by children's fiction, but it's got adult themes to it. Up next, Somali writer Nadifa Mohammed. Her latest novel, The Orchard of Lost Souls, was recently translated into French and won the Prix Albert Bernard. Mohammed talked to us from her home in London, where she speaks of the personal influences on her writing. The Orchard of Lost Souls tells the story of three women, or two women and one little girl, to be more precise. In the dying days of the Somali dictatorship in the 1980s, as the whole town, the whole country is really grinding to a halt around them, and how they each perceive their, their role in society, their, their sense of isolation, and their desire for a different kind of life. Your first book, Black Mama Boy, which everyone should read, was, was inspired by your father. And this deals, as you said, with the beginning of the civil war in Somalia from a feminine point of view. So um, mm -hmm. was there a, a certain person or, or something that inspired you to write this book? Yes. So the central character, I guess, she started off as my first character, so I still see her as the central character, is Kausar. And she's an older woman, um, feels much older than she really is. And very early on in the novel, she's made bedbound. She's attacked and left unable to walk. And her situation comes from my own grandmother's situation in Somalia. We left in 86. And just before we left, she'd been hit by a car and left bedbound. So when the war broke out, um, she wasn't able to flee like 95% of the population. So I, I knew about that from an early point in my life. I knew what happened to my grandmother and I wanted an opportunity to really investigate what that must have been like for someone who she'd returned to Hadagesa from Eritrea and she was a very kind of worldly woman who'd been around lots of different countries and been very independent. So when the war broke out and suddenly she was abandoned and I guess she must have thought that any minute she would be, she'd die. So I really wanted to think about that. And um, the character of Kausa is different to my grandmother in many respects, but that sensual experience is the same. The three characters are so different. I mean, the, not only age, but uh, background, uh, socioeconomic mm -hmm. status. Kausa was my favorite, I have to say. <laughs> so, um, yeah, she's, uh, yes. she's a really strong character. And, um, yeah, she's seen a lot. And, and, and you really get that from, from what she says and, and how she views life, even from her bed. Um, because we don't want to give yes. away the ending, but uh, but yeah, just yeah, what she sees from her bed well, is... Really, I really found it difficult to stop writing her bits, her sections of the novel, because, you know, she'd seen everything. She'd been there when the British were still there as, an, as part of the British Empire. Then she'd seen the Somali flag go up when it became independent. And then she'd been through the kind of really optimistic times in the 60s and 70s when suddenly everything was happening very quickly. Somalia had its own um, airline, it had its own government, it had its own language, written language for the first time. 
So all of these kind of um, big changes, big positive changes happened. And then suddenly it was like they'd hit a wall and life just started to become much, much, much harder until the 1980s. Everything was under curfew. People were being disappeared and executed. They had no real sense of freedom at all. She would have seen all of that. Um, I'm going to ask you to read a, a part of the book later on, and but there's one line that I think is so strong where where basically Kausser says that is what her upbringing is from. I mean, you show the three different generations and how they were affected in three different ways, even though they all come from the same place. Um, yeah, yeah, and there is, there is a kernel of similarity within them, I think, but they are all isolated. So... Kausar is an older woman who expected to just be a grandmother and a mother and to have a very simple but comfortable life. And there she is now, no, um, no husband, no children, no real social connections apart from her best friend. And then there's Thergo, the little girl who is an orphan and was raised by charities and um, the state in a way in the refugee camp. And then you have Filson who, she's the daughter of divorced parents and has a horrible relationship with her father and has run away from him basically and has no other real connections in Hargeisa. Well, she's run away from him, but then she also in a way emulates him or hopes that he from a distance, like admires and respects her. And accepts her finally. That whole idea of the state, the dictatorship said that, you know, they were reforming society and changing everything, including gender roles. So she's that first generation to to really be subject to that, where she has much more opportunity than Kausa ever had in terms of education, in terms of work. But she's in the most masculine environments. She's in the military. Mm. So she really is a woman and there's nothing that she can do. There's nothing, no skill, no role that she can play that can make her less of a woman. And I think in a way she doesn't want to be a woman, doesn't like the, the containment that involves she gets invited to, I think it's Radio Hargeisa, where she's, where she's yeah. asked to talk about what she did and, and how yes. she perceived it. And she just retreats back to her like third form school book of when she was, when she was yeah. learning to be. A- well, I guess what happens to people in those environments that makes them act against their conscience is something very slow. It's a slow kind of process of brainwashing, for want of a better word. And she has been brainwashed. She was schooled in that idea that there's progress and then there's regression. And she's one of the agents of progress. And sometimes you have to do terrible things in the name of progress. Well, you see the terrible things that she does or sees or it doesn't register with her in the same way that it would perhaps with Kauser, who's had a different lifestyle. Um, yeah. And I think Kauser's much more, she, she's a feminine role she's she's been happy with that she wanted to be a nurturer so all she has now to nurture is her garden but she was quite happy um having a husband who dealt with the outside world and she would deal with the internal domestic world and look after people and raise them and do that again and again and again so the idea of her being destructive in that similar sense would probably be quite strange but i don't think that's so much out of conscience rather than well why just she would never expect the opportunity to present itself well with Dergo, the little girl, I think she is someone who's much more, even at 10, she's already engaging with the ideas of power and violence and right and wrong. So she's someone that actually, I think she's probably the most ethical <laughs> of the three. She's raised herself and she's raised herself from the very bottom of society. And I think that her, her understanding of what you should do and what you shouldn't do is, is probably stronger. Yes, because she, she, she almost takes on the other 
to women, the way she views things, how did that age? She has less cultural baggage. She doesn't have any baggage because of where she was raised in the refugee camp, where it's a very limited society in lots of ways. People are thrown together from different backgrounds and told to get along. And she's especially outside of that because she doesn't have a clan, she doesn't have parents, she doesn't have all of the things that would create an us and them. The only us and them that she's probably known as the kids of the orphanage and the kids outside of the orphanage. All three of them, even though we're talking about them as in their three separate characters, they mm. they come together a few times. We won't say how, but but one yeah. of one of the times that I was very surprised is that when Deco sees uh, Kauser and Kauser thinks that she looks like seems her daughter. Yeah, that's it. And maybe it's just yeah. because she's thinking back or it's or maybe it's a longing, but the, it, it kind of jars you back to like who Kauser was at one point in her life. So yes, yeah, she she's she had a very kind of glamorous life in the early parts in the sixties and things, where her husband was traveling across Somalia, and she was um, one of the, probably the most privileged people in society. She was a very loving mother, and constantly kind of she was she had all of these miscarriages one after the other, which wore her down and wore down her sense of having any hope for life. And I think when we meet her, she really doesn't have any hope. And she's when she's in bed and she's kind of hallucinating and going back through her memories, trawling through her memories, and the whole the kind of distinction between reality and her own imagination really starts to blur. Here's Nadifa Muhammad reading from The Orchard of Lost Souls. When she wakes later in the afternoon... She sees the habbo glaring down at her. She lightly touches Kausa's bruised face. Look at you. How the mighty have fallen. She beat me like a disobedient donkey. Kausa smiles wanely. One of her eyes swollen and the left side of her vision blurred. I'm surprised she didn't kill me. Cho, you are made of leather and bitterness. Nothing can kill you. But if I could get my hands on her... I would skin her alive and make a handbag out of her hide. Dehaba squeezes the pillow in demonstration of her anger. She's a child of her time. No, it is the other way around. Those with sick hearts have made the time what it is. And what did you think you were doing anyway? Rushing away from us at the stadium like that. Did you lose your mind? Maybe. Holden must have got it from somewhere. Kausar, you have got to stop blaming yourself. No one can derail a person from their fate. She was loved more than any child I know, including my own. Dehaba's voice never drops from the volume it takes to yell across the street. Shh, Dehaba, can you not speak in a normal voice? Kausa hisses. She doesn't want the ancient woman in the bed beside her to overhear. To hell with them, Kausa, listen to me. You could not have done more for her. You bought the pills you were meant to. Had the imam read her the Quran, you kept her out of that place. She gestures through the window to the hospital madhouse. What else? What else could you have done? Or I? Or anyone? I know, I know. Let's not go over this again, Kausa says quietly. Tahapa clutches her shoulder. You are old now and fragile. You have to be kinder to yourself. I want it to all end, Tahapa. Is that wrong? No. But your time will come, as will mine. Wait. You can't throw yourself in danger, breaking a hip here, an arm there, leaving me with another mouth to feed. She reaches down to pick up a basket. I've put a few meals in here. I want the plates cleared. 
Do you understand me? I can't. Kausa feels guilty eating into Dahaba's hard-earned income. While hidden under her own mattress at home, there are hundreds and thousands of shillings. That was wonderful. <laughs> and um, I only have one more question, and that is, um, because I know that if people read The Orchard of Lost Souls and, of course, Black Mamba Boy, that uh, they want to know what you are working on now. Yes, um, I'm working on a novel um, set in, in Britain in the 1950s, which also follows the story of Somali sailors and the very first kind of cosmopolitan multicultural settlement, really, in Britain, which was in Cardiff. Oh. Yeah, it's been a really fun book to write, really interesting, and it's based on a real story, so it's been great to do the research for that as well. I've learned a lot. That's all the time we have today. Thanks for joining us on Africa Stories in the 55. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. We want to hear from you. What are you reading? Get in touch via email at storiesinthe55 at rfi.fr. That's stories in the 55 written in numbers at rfi.fr. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.